Let us pray. We do walk by faith, Lord, and we do stand on your promises. We pray, Lord, that you would plant those promises deep within our hearts, that we might be shaped by them, shaped by your Son, and that you would shape us this morning by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've made it to the halfway point of our sermon series. Walk in the light, lessons from 1 John. I hope you've been blessed by the first half and will continue to be. I know that in preparing these sermons, I've been convicted of some things. I've had some moments where I've needed to kind of catch myself, take a bit of a breath. But overall, I've been encouraged. We've hopefully been getting clarity on the gospel and what it means to walk in the light of Christ. Last week... For example, we learned that not everyone can rightfully be called a child of God, but that we must be reborn of God, adopted into his family. This week, John is going to fill out what it means for us to live as a reborn child of God. John's writing has been likened to that of a composer. Is this tendency to develop a theme and then leave it and go to another one and then come back to that first one and develop it a little more and then leave it again and go back to the other one with it all sort of coming together towards the end. Today, he's coming back to the theme that he developed earlier, the theme of Christian love. We read, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He'll further develop or clarify what it means to live a life of love. And he does it by giving us two negatives and two positives. A negative and positive example and a negative and positive application. Jesus, or John tells us that followers of Jesus have heard the same unchanging message that we are to love one another. He then gives us two examples of how to understand what this means. And in typical John fashion, he begins with the negative. The negative example he gives us is Cain. Now a quick refresher or perhaps an introduction to Cain. Way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 4, Cain and his brother Abel make an offering to God. Abel's offering is accepted, and Cain's is not. In the Genesis account, we're not told why that happened, but we do know that in response, Cain killed his brother Abel. In verse 12 of our passage today, John shed some more light on what occurred. We read, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. John tells us that Cain was of the evil one. Or to use the language we've heard throughout the epistle, he was in darkness. Abel, however, showed himself to be in the light, to be righteous. Cain's encounter with God exposed Cain's darkness. That is what happens when darkness encounters light. It becomes exposed. As righteousness is encountered, 
sinfulness is exposed. And what's the darkness that was revealed in Cain? Well, it began as envy. He looked at his brother's accepted offering. He saw Abel's righteousness and he was envious of him. That envy grew into hatred and hatred into murder. Two things we want to take away from this. First, we shouldn't be surprised when the gospel meets resistance. John writes in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus is the light of the world. And as the church, as the followers of Jesus, we are meant to reflect the light of Christ into the darkness of the world. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, For God has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The challenge is, as Jesus taught in John's gospel, people love the darkness more than the light. As people encounter Jesus, their sinfulness is exposed by his righteousness, and people don't really like to have that happen. We can often wonder about those who don't believe and why they don't seem to want to know Jesus, but it's because of this truth that people love sin and hate righteousness. We'll speak more about that to- this topic next week, so I don't want to belabor the point, but just to say that if we are followers of Jesus, we should not be surprised when people don't want to hear about him or get upset at merely the mention of the name of Jesus. Light exposes darkness. And having the darkness exposed can easily lead to envy, hatred, and murder, as it did with Cain. Second thing, we might look at this and think, well, then it's just a warning for non-believers. I believe in Jesus, I'm fine. Don't need to worry about this one. Well, that's not true. It's happened to all of us. Looking at someone with envy in our heart. Thinking, what makes them so special? We like to think that we don't envy those that practice righteousness, but it happens all the time. And so we start assigning ulterior motives to the people that we see doing good. they They just want to be seen. They want people to see just how perfect they are. It happens. When it does, we often let it fester inside of ourselves, and envy grows into hatred. And it grows not because there is anything wrong with that person, but because of the brokenness of our own hearts. Deep down, we want things to be about us. We want the glory and the attention, and so when the other person is doing all these good things and getting credit for it, we get jealous because we're not. We do it with other people, we do it with God. Assuming that his love and, intention and attention are, are limited. So if he's giving those things to someone else, then there's less for me. And so we end up hating that other person. And hatred leads to murder. Now many would say, I would never murder someone. I would never do that. Verse 15, though, tells us that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
Now, that might sound extreme to us, but it's simply a reiteration of Jesus' own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have time to read it today, but after the service, maybe sometime this week, take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Now, many of us might not physically murder someone. I will grant you that. But, in our hatred, we will kill their reputations. We will murder their social standing. We will speak ill of others and harbor a desire for them to come to harm. Envy leads to hatred. Hatred leads to murder. And these are the things of the evil one. Now what's truly sad is that it didn't have to be that way for Cain. In the Genesis account, God says in response to Cain's anger, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's as if he's saying, Cain, don't let the anger fester. Don't hate your brother. It will take you to a place you don't want to go. There is another way. Cain stayed with his envy. He stayed with his self-serving posture. And if we do the same, it will lead to the same outcome. If we look to ourselves, we will never overcome our sin. But God's given us another way. And it's the positive example from our reading. Rather than following Cain, we are to look to Christ. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. In Christ, we see the perfect example of the posture that we are intended to have, one of self-giving love. Now, just a quick side note before we go too far on this. While Jesus is certainly an example to us, we want to be careful in viewing him as just that, that Jesus is merely an example. He, he didn't die to be an example. He died to be our Savior. And so while we look to him to be a guide in how we are to live, please do not limit him to that. To do so would be to make the same mistake that the false teachers in John's day were making. It's limiting Jesus and his atoning work. End of side note. We live in a day and age, as I've said before, where the word love is just kind of thrown around without any sort of meaning or definition. It seems to mean, at times, I guess, that it's really any positive feeling toward anything or anyone at any time. We use the word love to talk about how we feel. And certainly love will have, at least at times, emotion. It will include that. But it's more than just a feeling. John here gives us the definition of love that all Christians should have. Love is a posture. It is a manner of living that is characterized by self-giving. John writes that as Christ laid down his life for us, so also we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And that is the evidence of whether we have passed out of darkness that Cain embodied and into the light that only Christ can provide. So what does it mean to lay down one's life? 
Does it mean that we should be willing to literally die for one another? Well, yes, if we are called to that. Truthfully, most of us won't be. Everybody can take a deep breath now. (laughs) But we are all called to be self-giving. To be willing to sacrifice of ourselves, whether it be our time or our talents or, yes, even our treasures, for the advancement of the gospel and the betterment of others. It means being willing to genuinely sacrifice for other people. And no way should that be a shocking thing for us to hear. That's, That's Christianity 101 right there. To claim the title of Christian, to genuinely believe and follow Jesus, is to have a posture of self-giving, self-sacrifice. These are the two great frameworks that John gives us today. Cain, the embodiment of what it means to be in the darkness, filled with envy and hatred. And Christ, the embodiment of what it is to love, to live and walk in the light. It's self-serving self-giving. We need to keep these frameworks in mind so that we can begin to understand the personal application of them. When we get down to the personal level, this posture of self-giving becomes a little more challenging. It's very easy to say, oh, of course. I I mean, I have a posture of self-giving. I love people. I love the world. It becomes much more difficult, though, when we apply this, self, this posture of self-giving to a specific level rather than a general one. G.P. Lewis puts it this way. It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. That is the challenge, isn't it? I can get behind loving the world. There's no problem there. But the loud neighbor, always making way too much noise at night. The guy who cut me off in traffic, the repairman who keeps taking advantage of me because I have no idea what he's talking about. Or the relative that thinks I'm kind of nuts for believing in Jesus? That's a little more difficult, isn't it? What does John say? Verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I don't know about you all, those are two very convicting verses for me. I can be sacrificial in my giving to those whom I love, but those who are a little more challenging to love, I'd much rather hang on to my money and my time, thank you very much. I'd rather do something else. The problem's not with them, it's with me. It's saying that my time and my money and my abilities are more valuable than they are because they're not really all that lovable. 
It's so easy to fall into this line of thinking, but doing so shows that we have not understood what it is to have the self-giving posture of Christ. It is to love in word or talk and not deed and truth. Remember what we said last week. Christ died for us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He didn't wait for us to become utterly, earth-shockingly attractive people. If he did, he'd be waiting for all eternity. The first personal challenge that we face is that we can love generally, but we don't really want to love specifically. The second challenge is we know it. We look inside our own hearts, and if we're honest, we know we don't love as much as we should. We don't love as we ought to. Those are the negative challenges we have when we try to apply this framework of love on a personal level. Here's the positive that John provides. We look inside ourselves, and an honest assessment reveals our own sinfulness and lack of love. And so we wonder where we stand with God. Moments where we lack assurance that we, that we truly know him. John makes it clear, though, that having moments where we lack assurance of salvation or assurance of faith is actually a pretty normal thing for Christians to go through. The presence of doubt doesn't mean that we never really had faith. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Reassure. The very word assumes that we lack assurance sometimes. But we have reason for assurance. Remember what we said about God's response to Cain, to not let his anger fester because sin was crouching at the door, waiting to pounce on him. But he stayed inside himself. Friends, if we look inside ourselves, we will never find the love that we need or the assurance we desire. We are to look, as always, to Christ. John wrote, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. People will often come to me with a a sin that they want to confess or who are deeply concerned about the things in their life, the lack of love that they have. And we should feel the weight of those things. We should feel convicted by the sin in our hearts and the propensity we have towards being self-serving rather than self-giving. But when someone is concerned about the sin in their life, I'm actually encouraged. It means that they care about it. And in caring about it, They're looking for a way out of it. Far more concerning is the person that is just dripping with obvious sin and has no idea. They are completely oblivious about it, or they're calling their sin good. That is a spiritually treacherous place to be. The person who sees their sin and feels the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's a far better place to be. Rather than allowing that conviction to turn to condemnation. It's an opportunity to stop looking inside ourselves and look to the God who knows all things. God's knowledge should be an encouragement to us, not something we need to be afraid of. 
God knows our hearts. So yes, he knows the lack of love that resides there, but he also knows if we care about our sin or not. God knows our hearts, and he knows we cannot provide the way out of our sin. And so he bids us to come to him. John writes, and this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. There is a reason why faith in Christ is listed before loving one another. It is only in believing in Christ that we will begin to love as he did. It is only in looking to Christ that we can live as he did. And it is only in Christ that we can find the assurance we desire. Not in ourselves. One of my heroes of the faith was a man named Charles Simeon. Someday when we have more time, I'll give you the full story of Simeon. It's a fascinating one. He was one of the most gifted preachers of his time. It was a gift to the church in England. And he dedicated his life to the service of Christ. He recorded this one time. He wrote, I have and continually had such a sense of my sinfulness as would sink me into utter despair if I had not an assured view of the sufficiency and willingness of Christ to save me to the uttermost. All Christians, even giants like Simeon, if we looked to ourselves, would have no ground for assurance. But in looking to Christ, we see the one who loves us more than we could possibly know and who showed it in the ultimate act of self-giving love. He died so that we might be saved from our sin. And it is in his love and sacrifice that we can have assurance. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. If we believe in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. And so when we feel it, when we sin, it's a part of having the Holy Spirit. He reveals the sin that we commit. But since he lives inside us, we need not despair. We need not lose our assurance of his presence and love. Rather, over time, he makes us more loving by showing us where we are not. He helps us to love the person who's been such a challenge for us. And to stop loving the things of this world more than the people of this world. Often it starts by the Holy Spirit convicting us to pray for them. I don't know about you, but when I've got a difficult person in my life, it can be a challenge to pray for them. But it helps every time, doesn't it? More often than not, we're the one who gets changed by it. Loving one another sacrificially. Having a posture of self-giving rather than self-serving. That is the call of every Christian. It is the example that Jesus provided us, but he is far from being just a good example. He is the salvation from our sins, the author and giver of love who makes it possible for us to genuinely love one another. 
And he is the ground of our assurance, not holding it against us when we need reassurance. But through the gift of the Holy Spirit, reminding us again and again that he gave himself for us, and through faith in him, we can have confidence in the love that he has for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the gift of salvation, and that in him we can be assured of our salvation. Father, we are weak. We have moments of sinfulness. We have moments of doubt. We pray, Lord, that you would not let the evil one to grab hold of those, but that we would turn to you in confession and in a desire to know that we are yours now and forever. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.